0: know what was going on. They had a lot of edema, like swelling, and the heart issue was, was a problem. So they did genetic testing. The doctor came in and just said, we have the results. And they said, your son has um, a deletion on one of his chromosomes. But the name that the uh, doctors gave to that uh, deletion back when uh, they identified it was brachy mental retardation syndrome. So it's a really bad sounding when you're reading that and we're researching on the internet immediately. Right. And so we find like some research papers on this and it's terrible prognosis. So we realized we have two kids that are gonna have a lot of challenges in life. So we didn't have Noah until 2021. So the twins were almost six at that point when we decided to try another, to have another kid and, uh, it was a huge, huge weight on us, but in some ways, for some people, it's like it destroys their relationship. For Mallory and I, I think it made it stronger. And it certainly made my relationship with God stronger. I was upset. I was mad. I'm like, why is this happening to my children? Uh, you come full circle and you realize that uh, God doesn't put you to things you can't handle. And he, as long as you can rely on Him, know that He has a plan, uh, and be willing to live it, then you can survive anything.
1: Scott Fitzpatrick here with me, husband, father, entrepreneur, leader in the state of Missouri, and an intimidating presence on the basketball court. Welcome.
0: You know, that's uh, the, the last thing you said is the thing I'm most proud of, probably. So,
1: Well, your chief of staff, you know, I said something on Twitter, your chief of staff is here and he, you know, you guys have some aggressive moments together in the on the basketball court does that ever leak over into the professional space like you like still mad at each other when you go back to the office
0: no we leave it all on the court you know yeah. including my back that needs adjusted after he sets a blind you, pick on me from well, time to time but
1: i'm yeah, glad I that leave you me. leave it on the court. i'm not sure he does because i you know i go in there every now and again and they'll complain the whole time about how they got bodied up by you
0: well is that are we finally figuring out what happened to the side of my car somebody somebody scratched the side of my car with a mystery and Brandon's the one investigating it, but uh, maybe maybe we got the wrong person looking into that.
1: You need a Tesla because they have the cameras along the side, and then they can record everything that
0: happens. Well, that's what my wife has. So and you told me about that. Yeah, she. Uh, it's quite interesting. It's already been involved in a couple of little incidents. So
1: oh gosh, well you got the cameras, so now you know what's going on. That's right. Um, let's start with this: Why run for office when you're a successful entrepreneur? Like you started early, you had this thriving business, and then. Like, for some crazy reason, you ran for the Missouri house.
0: well, thriving might not be the adjective I would pick for it at the at that time, but it was you know, I started that company when I was in high school, just doing odd jobs on boat docks and over time built it into a dock builder and you know became uh, you know a manufacturing facility we came along with that, and installation crews and doing business in multiple states and what I experienced in my late teens, early twenties was just a lot of interaction with government at the state level, at the local level, and at the federal level that was, number one, incredibly time-consuming, number two, very frustrating uh, just in nature because I was in a business that was pretty regulated. When you're doing anything around public waterways, you're dealing with a lot of bureaucracy. And so those experiences kind of informed my view of government. Uh, It it was informed. A lot of people come from different perspectives, right? I came from the perspective of a young guy trying to start a business, trying to employ people, which, you know, I timed uh, you know, incredibly poorly, like some other things probably in a lot of people's lives. Uh, I got started really, you know, in earnest, you know, with a a non-stop payroll, you know, every two weeks having to make a payroll in 2006 and then, you know, in 2008 was, you know, the wheels came off the economy. So trying to get through that, survive that period of time just like any other Business owner, many of whom had been around a lot longer than I had, was an exercise in you know in faith and you know testing the limits of what I was able to handle from just a stress perspective, and you know trying to navigate bureaucracy at the same time was really frustrating because I felt like in some ways, in many ways, that those hurdles placed in front of me by the government were some of the biggest hurdles, even more so sometimes in the economic environment we were in, which I think was also somewhat created by the government at the time. And uh, so that's when I got started paying attention to politics, and it's when I also realized that the people in charge of the government at all levels is really important to you know people, everyday citizens, which I considered myself to be one of those. And so I started paying attention and decided in 2012, I was 24 years old, my State rep was term limited, was running for state Senate, and I decided to take a stab at running for office and figured I'd get involved, try to do something about it instead of just, uh, you know, have pity on myself for the struggles I was having dealing with, you know, permitting authorities and things like
1: that. Yeah. So going back to your business, and this is really fascinating because you, you having started a business here in high school, I mean, you're young, you're still young. I, I, I don't know how old you are. But you're several years younger than me. And um, you're the state auditor in the state of Missouri, which is a big deal you started in high school and then 2008 hits and like this market crash probably is significant for, for manufacturers, for the bill, the type of building you're doing. Cause it's maybe not a total necessity. So how did you get through that as a business? How do you, how do you fight and struggle through that? Well, yeah, it was not, yeah, we were in
0: a, in a, you know, a luxury goods business essentially. You don't have to have a boat dock and we had gotten into uh uh focusing on marinas as opposed to just residential customers and a lot of those types of jobs are debt financed so we were in a situation where capital markets were locked up banks weren't lending money to anybody for anything and so really we were down to a point where the only um the only jobs that we would really have access to were people who could pay cash or you know if there was a natural disaster that caused an insurance company to have to write a check and ultimately, it came down to in January of 2009, I remember kind of staring down the barrel of failure. I thought I was kind of over um, because uh, the one good-sized job that we had at the time when all of this started, uh, the bank that had financed it was one of the banks that failed. I think it was Washington Mutual. The customer was not very creditworthy. And we were in a situation where we were owed a bunch of money for product we had delivered to them and for product we had manufactured that they had not yet taken delivery of. And I remember telling the, the sales guy that was kind of the intermediary that was actually a separate company that kind of was acting as a dealer on that project. I'm like, Hey, we're going to have to stop delivering product. And I thought that threat was going to get the money to start flowing. And he said, that's probably a good idea. And so I remember getting off that phone call and thinking, man, we are in deep trouble here. I was over Christmas break. I was in college in Mizzou. And, uh, ultimately,
1: how, how big was your staff at that point too? We had probably 20 employees at that point. That so you're, be... you're in college at yeah. Mizzou. you're running this company. You have 20 employees and you feel like you're going to go under. Yep. Yeah. That's that was like a lot of pressure. Yeah. The
0: kid. And the thing that broke and yeah, this is one of those things where, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, like the small examples of things that happen where, your faith is is grounded in so it was like january of 2009 i was at a trade show in florida you know the big uh, marina conference and i remember there was a big we had a big ice storm back home down at table rock lake and it collapsed a bunch of docks and uh generated a bunch of business Mm -hmm. on table rock Lake. not a ton but enough to like Keep the the wheels turning. uh It was like one of those natural disaster things. An insurance company had to write a check, and you know that money, a lot of that money, ended up uh, flowing our way. And then about a month or two after that, there was a, a tornado that went through in Eastern Kentucky, and we had been doing this advertising thing with at the time it was I think Yellow Book. We were paying like two grand a month to be anytime anybody searched Dock Builder on Yellow Book, which was apparently one time ever. <laughs> We were the first result to come up anywhere in the country. And that was how this customer in Eastern Eastern Kentucky found us. And we got a good job out of that. And then there was a fire uh, at Lake of the Ozarks at a marina there that we stumbled across and got a job out of there. So we got three projects that were good sized jobs because of three separate natural disasters that essentially bailed the company out until calmer waters came. That's crazy. Just
1: oh. was driving me nuts. It's not very centered. We starting over? No, no. <laughs> I'm just going to edit that part out. So it's very, yeah, very yeah. easy to, to carve that out. Sorry. We were in a nice little thick part of it. I'm like, hey, let's stop this for a That's second okay. and get off of this touching subject to, for me to fix the camera. Oh, it's not that. Yeah, it's not that touching. It was just the,
0: uh,
1: I mean, you know. I mean, like I think happened. it is. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that that part of your story, like the reality of it is not all like rainbows and sunshine right. for your story. You are a successful entrepreneur because you got through stuff like that, but it's because as a result of really hard things. And I can't imagine being a college student and having 20 people's lives on the, like their livelihood in your hands Yeah. in the midst of the struggle of, I mean, I, I notice now I'm learning a lot about just jumping out on a business and what it's the like, the tremors of just waking up on something that's low level like mine, but I, I don't have any employees. I can't imagine having 20 people relying on me. Yeah, we
0: owed. Uh, I think I owed our, my primary steel vendor like three hundred thousand dollars. Uh had a line of credit that was about the same amount that was maxed out at the bank, and uh, so that was uh, and it was my you know hometown community bank. Uh, so you know, and that was one of those things where it's like, man, you really don't want to let that group of people down. <laughs> I mean, the pre- president of the bank was the announcer at my football games. You know what I mean? It's like i got my first loan from them when I was eighteen. I borrowed fourteen thousand dollars to buy a work truck and you know paid it back in 90 days and that was kind of how I got my banking relationship started there and they trusted me you know ever since to you know that I would borrow money and pay it back and and so I was in a situation where I thought I was going to not be able to do that and ultimately everything worked out and you know was able to pay all the vendors and pay the bank and and do that but it, there were certainly moments and that's the thing like you said a lot of people will look at you know, an entrepreneur that's had some success and think, Oh, they've got it so easy. You know, it's, yeah. the reality is, you know,
1: you know, they multiple. got like multiple planes. They've got, you know, that just have really knocked it out of the park, but
0: yeah, no, I mean, the, the reality is there are so many points at which in my story failure should have occurred and didn't, yeah. uh, or very, at least could have occurred. Yeah. You know, I, and I didn't do this right. I went in, I didn't have a business plan. You know what I mean? I just was, Shooting from the hip, winging it, you know, and it just all kind of.
1: Is that a out. plan from one of your staffers? They say, "Can you take a little dig at Travis and his business plan in, in your talk?" Because I'm getting a lot. That's another complaint I have with your staff is like a lot of shade on this media a thing lot of that I started. Hey man, and like, what's your business plan? That like, one of your staffers is always asking me about it.
0: Well, I didn't have one, so you can you can just tell <laughs> see it's a You can just tell him if you think a business plan is so important, you should find a new job because your boss <laughs> didn't have one. <laughs>
1: Uh, uh, I think he should find a new job. I think that's a great path for him. Um, <laughs> now, when does Mallory show up in this whole story? Your wife, she's this terrific lady. What, when did you meet her? Was this in the midst of all this struggle or was this later? In, what? So there? it was actually a little
0: before that. And so she went to Northwest Missouri state, her freshman year of college. I went to Mizzou. And did my, you know each
1: other from, were nope. you were raised in the San She's okay. from uh,
0: Lee Summit. And so my randomly assigned roommate, a freshman year of college at Mizzou was a guy named Kyle Wilkerson from Lee Summit. So we uh you know it was one of those things where we got paired together, didn't know each other at all, met, we hit it off. Uh we were best men in each other's wedding. He works he's actually the president of the company now at at Maricorp and runs it and started working for me and 2007, when we were both in college, but he knew Mallory from high school, and she came down to visit him. And I was actually not in town that weekend. Uh, she came down to visit him and some other Lee Summit people that went to Mizzou, and uh, decided to transfer to Mizzou after her freshman year. And we met, um, and so at the beginning of our sophomore year, when she had transferred to Mizzou, and we're hanging out in the same friend group and started dating and early 2008. So it was actually you know, right in that time frame. she was going through that whole experience with me uh, when I was shouldering all the weight of the potential failure of, of business. One thing I always tell people is that I really didn't have a lot to lose in 2008. I was literally, I was 20, 20 years old. Uh, and yeah, you know, I didn't own a home. I didn't... I mean, really all I had was the business, right? And I put a lot of my you know blood, sweat, and tears into that business working you know, sixteen hour days. When I first started, I was out there building docks with the guys and keeping the books by my you know, on my own uh, at night. And so, you know, losing that would have would have sucked. But at the same time, I didn't have a family. I didn't have kids relying on me. I didn't have a wife. I, you know, it was a totally different ball game. That so, I, I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for people who take that leap of faith later in life. When because I'm just telling you, like right now for me. To you know go risk everything to start a new business You it know, would be a tough decision you know what I mean that was is as challenging as those times were the reality was you know, the worst case scenario for me was I filed bankruptcy my credit was bad for seven years or whatever and and then I'm starting over you know which I didn't have much to lose anyway
1: you guys have always impressed me as having a really good relationship for people that are in politics I, I've observed these things because I think that these marriages fall apart as a result of the pressure that goes along with being in politics and so it really fascinates me how Mallory shows up in this this time where it's probably a crucible for her too to be in this this relationship with you not married yet and you going through what you were going through how much did you lean on her at that time before you even married to, or was it just like she's yeah. helping me process some of this and you
0: know, you know my my recollection is and her hers may be different was that I shared I shared some of those in the worst moments, I shared some of what was going on with her, but I've always tried to, to not burden other people with my problems. It's just the uh, nature of men, I think, to try to like c- contain their own emotions and keep their problems to themselves as opposed to projecting them on other people. That being said, I I do think that there were times where it's like the the challenges I was dealing with in business you can't wall that off entirely from your personal life. And so yeah. she definitely saw, she definitely saw me stressed out from those things uh, at, at that time. Uh, and, you know, stuck with me through it all. There was probably points in time where she's like, oh, this guy's going to, this guy's going to go broke. Do I really <laughs> want to be with that guy? But we we made it through. And I mean, as far as the relationship goes, every marriage has ups and downs and challenges and, and ours is no different, but we've been through a lot together. Uh, from that to having twin sons that have special needs, to just going through family challenges together with her side of the family, she has an uncle with Huntington's disease that that uh, is just a sad situation. And and so we've we've been through a lot together, but we're also like immeasurably blessed to have loving family around us. We we have four kids together that we love and get to. Be with a lot, and it all just comes down to like, you, like I said. I mean, it all just really comes down to priorities, and uh, in terms of how you or you didn't say I'm saying it now, I guess, but you probably think it. And it, you know, it comes down to how you prioritize your time uh, and how you spend that time. And that really has a big impact on how your marriage is going to be.
1: Yeah. Going back to your twin sons with special needs, I think just touching on this really quick. I remember when you had your sons, and I could just tell. You were in the you were in the fire early on because there were so many dynamics to to their health. Can you speak to that being busy, kind of running the state's budget, and having your wife taking on a lot of weight, you being gone, and there's several aspects to it. But can you kind of talk about that time in your life and how how you guys made it through that in the midst of that fire.
0: Yeah, so the the twins it was every, by all kind of. Uh accounts it was a normal pregnancy up until basically a week before they were born and they ended up being born uh, 9 weeks early so we went uh, we went in for a uh, you know for a just a, a checkup uh, an ultrasound uh, which she got a lot of ultrasounds when it was with twins and we were doing an ultrasound i guess it would've been the first weekend in November or first week in November and the ultrasound tech said now this Baby A looks like, they call him baby A and baby B, So baby A looks like one side of his heart is maybe a little bit large. And so the doctor referred us to a high-risk OB that we had an appointment to see the following Monday. So that would have been November 10th, or no, November 9th. Uh, And so we were at home that weekend, and on Sunday afternoon, our water broke we nine weeks early. So we go to the hospital and, uh, the hospital uh, we went to, we told them like, Hey, we just had this ultrasound and said potential heart problem. Uh, we don't know what is going on with that. And they said, well, we, you need to be somewhere other than here. So they actually brought in a helicopter, flew her to Springfield to Mercy in Springfield. And so I ended up driving over there. It was late at night and the boys were born The next morning despite their efforts to keep her from having them uh, that early and it was very touch and go so yeah, with by day two of life they were transported to children's mercy in kansas city and it was really high winds so they had to take them by ambulance couldn't airlift them we were driving to children's mercy late at night you know midnight or whatever with huge winds on 13 highway i remember a deer ran out in front of the ambulance it was we were like oh my god so but anyway, we got there. We were in the NICU for four months. And so Mallory literally left our house on you know November 8th to go to the hospital and did not come back home until March 9th. Uh, she didn't leave the hospital. Well, she left the hospital, but she didn't come back to our home. Fortunately, we were in Kansas City where her parents lived. And so we were able to get out of the hospital every once in a while. But we stayed in the Ronald McDonald house there uh, right next to Children's Mercy and I remember we learned it was a day of winter caucus when we got that they did some genetic testing because we didn't know what was going on. We could, They had a lot of edema, like swelling, and the heart issue was was a problem. So they did genetic testing and we got the results actually on, I think it was December 9th or December 11th, uh, whatever day winter caucus was that year. And we the doctor came in and just said, we have the results, you're sons, or they only tested Luke at at that time, and they said your son has um, a deletion on one of his chromosomes, it's 2Q37 is the area on the chromosome. But the name that the uh, doctors gave to that uh, deletion back when uh, they identified it was brachydactyly mental retardation syndrome. So it's a really bad sounding when you're reading that. And they give you a, we're researching on the internet immediately, right? Yeah. And so we find like some research papers on this and it's terrible prognosis in terms of development, independence, being able to get a job, those types of things. And so we have a consult the next day with, uh, with the genetics team at Children's Mercy and the genetics doctor walks in and hands us a copy of the same report we had found on the internet. So we're like, you know, a hundred people worldwide history of the world have been identified to have this deletion. So we were like in a very tough place. So they went ahead and tested Carson, and we had to wait another you know month for that result, and he came back that he had a, the same deletion as well. So we realized we have two kids that are they're gonna have a lot of challenges in life, and so we spent the next we didn't have Noah until 2021. So the twins were almost six at that point when we decided to try another to have another kid, and uh, it was a huge huge weight on. Us, but in some ways, and I've always felt this way. The most difficult times in life are the times in which it destroys a relationship. For Mallory and I, I think it made it stronger, and it certainly made my relationship with God stronger. It was I was upset, I was mad, I'm like why is this happening to my children? Uh, but it also you, you come full circle and you realize that uh, God doesn't put you to things you can't handle, and he, you as long as you can rely on Him, know that He has a plan. Uh, and be willing to live it then you you know you can you can survive anything uh, and that's kind of
1: where we're at how do you get through that moment and you're not just like i'm going to quit everything because i feel like i need to be here like how do you keep going forward and not that it's a bad thing but just like thinking in my mind like how my mind would have been reeling how do you get through that without just saying i've I've just got to be here full time well i was there for i was there
0: without pretty much leaving until sessions started in January. And then I was leaving. I was driving to, to Jeff City uh, Mondays and coming back Thursday. So I was gone a few nights. And I remember
1: some of those conversations when you're going through it, just hearing from you, I could just tell, like it's just weighing on you heavily at that time.
0: Yeah, it was. But again, dude, we had so much support. So my at the time, my sister lived in Kansas City. My brother lived in Kansas City. My in-laws, my grandma, aunts, uncles, cousins, and my parents were coming up. All the time. And so we would literally like have 15 people in the waiting room where they'd bring like crock pots of chili and we'd be these, the people at the hospital were just like, kind of like, who are these people? Yeah. I mean, so we were blessed beyond measure to have that kind of support system in and around us while we were there. And so Mallory was able to have her mom was up there every, pretty much every day with her when I wasn't there, uh, which was a blessing. And um, so it was, as bad as it was, the other thing about being in a NICU for four months is you see so many situations that are far worse. You see, I, there were babies that would come in that didn't have anybody to see them to visit them. You know, they have people that come and volunteer to hold babies that don't have anybody there for them. Um, and there's more of that than, I mean, it, than you would really realize. Um, and then you have parents who want to be with their, with their kid that just can't because, you know, they work a job where they get, you know, a week of vacation and, you know, there's no like, Hey, we're going to give you paid time off to go sit at the hospital for three months. Right. And so as, as tough as all that was, it was clear to me very quickly after getting there that even we were very fortunate to be in the situation we were in that NICU and to have have the family around us and have the doctors that were doing a great job for us and uh,
1: an incredible support system. Yeah. Really quickly. How are, how are the boys doing now? Cause this is eight years ago.
0: Yeah. So they're uh, in first grade and they're look, we, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. We have a lot of challenges, but you know, they're both physically healthy. Um, we had a great summer, spent a lot of time at the lake. They love, love to swim, go out on the they like to be outside they like to do stuff outside Noah the two year old is they love Noah Noah loves them. they play together a lot, and so we're at a point where they're eight years old. They don't really have any friends you know, they're, yeah they're yeah, to the extent that they do one of one of the boys is nonverbal so he can't really tell us anything. We don't know what's happening other than what we get communication from the school. We don't know what happens during the day at school other than what we're told by the school itself uh, Luke he can talk some, but he can't. Communicate with us about in depth about what he's feeling or what's going on. he's very good at telling us what he wants and does that uh, on repeat but so those those are the things that are that are a challenge, but they are both by and large very happy kids, and they when I look at them, I see that while some days are, can be really challenging for us, they have a pretty good life, and you know they're by and large. I think and happy most of the time, and when they're not, we can tell and we can do things to adjust and make that better. So it becomes easier when you realize that they don't have the same burdens. Their reality, they're blessed in a lot of ways that they don't have a lot of the same burdens and problems that that you and I do, um, or that kids, other kids their age do that um, you know can be. Really tough school, elementary, middle school, high school can be a tough time for a lot of kids, uh, as you know that are typically developing, and and so we realize that, and we just kind of got to take everything with, and you know, we know the situation we're in, and try to do, do the best we can with it.
1: It's it's really amazing because I think your your rise in political ranks in Missouri in the midst of all that family stuff and keeping your marriage intact and growing in that, like it's a it's a really encouraging thing, like. I think it's really impressive myself. So uh, thanks for taking all that time to talk about it because that's not an easy thing. But I want to get back to I want to get to the budget, the state budget, your role as a leader in the state on the budget because you ran the budget through the house years ago, and you started that in the midst on the back end of a of a an economy that was really bad. You mm-hmm. know, in your I think you started in 2013 because I think you were a term before I was right. So yeah. you were inaugurated first time. Very quickly became the the budget chair. We were still struggling with budgets under Nixon in 2015-16. I just, I felt like we, we came in and even eight years after the, the market crash, the state budget was still like crazy, bad, yeah. not, not in a good place. Um, you stepped up and really helped in that scenario by making sure we weren't starting new programs. So talk a little bit about that, how you came in and your, your business experience impacted your ability to lead the budget in the state in a hard time. So I,
0: when I got to Jeff City, I knew why I was there, right? I knew we all know why we want to run or, or if you're doing it for the right reasons, you have a reason you want to be there other than just for the notoriety. For me, it was just like, I was so frustrated with government and bureaucracy that I just wanted to be on the other side of them to try to hold them accountable for how they spend our money and how they treat taxpayers. And so when I got up there, I knew that was why I was there, but I hadn't really given a lot of thought to how I was going to do that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's the first time you you roll in. Uh, After the election, you have to fill out a sheet with your committee preferences, right? And uh, I was like, man, what committees do I want to be on? So I actually started talking to some people around. I talked to some of the staff, including some of the nonpartisan staff, when we went on the freshman tour. And I decided I wanted to be on the budget committee because that's one, the one area, the one committee where you can pretty much touch every kind of policy area that there is in state government, as well as having a role in overseeing. The executive branch, which, in my view, was the, needed a lot of oversight that it wasn't really getting, and so I was able to get Speaker Tim Jones to appoint me to the budget committee um and the that was my first year was just asking a ton of questions that when, and I think that I asked questions that maybe a lot of people wouldn't want to ask because they're afraid they would look stupid or something. And I just didn't care about that. I was already at a point where I was 24 or 25 years old and most people probably thought I was stupid anyway. So I just asked the questions I wanted to ask and uh, people, I guess, thought they were good because a lot of people were like, man, that was a good question. I I kind of wondered the same thing. And I was like, well, I'm glad we both benefited. you know. But I remember that first year revenue grew 10.1%. And I was like, man, if we get 10% revenue growth every year, this is going to be easy. And then the next year it was a decline. We like went down like 1% or something. I was like, oh, okay, this is how it works. And the reason was that that was at the time where the Bush tax cuts were expiring. And so there were a bunch of people rushing to get their capital gains in and paying tax on capital gains. It was a one-time revenue item. And so I realized, oh, look, we've got a lot of de- tough decisions to make here. And I really just tried to focus on because we, we the way we were budgeting, we were giving, you know, it was Governor Nixon at the time, we were agreeing to ridiculously high revenue estimates and then bu- planning to spend every dollar of that estimate. And then the first time anything didn't go according to plan, whether it be that we needed a supplemental or that revenue wasn't quite going according to what we had assumed, we would end up in a situation where Governor Nixon would withhold money from the budget. And that was frustrating to a lot of us. But at the, at the same time, It was our fault. We were the ones who were agreeing to these revenue estimates that were too high. We were the ones that were appropriating every single dollar of it because we wanted to make everybody happy. And the reality of budgeting is you can't make everybody happy and do a good job. You can't do that. You can't do both those things. Now you can now. (laughs) But it maybe not this coming
1: year, but maybe not this coming
0: year. year. But you know, for but back then it was just not it was not an option. And so when I became budget chairman, my goal was not to be able to write home about all the things we spent money on. My goal is to be able to write home because we would always at the end, the talking points are always, oh, we passed a balanced budget. And it's like, I'm not going to, I don't really want to say that because I don't think we did. You know, we just, mm. you know, everybody said we have a balanced budget requirement. You know, well, the reality is we, we can't deficit spend. We can't spend below. We can't borrow money to fund our ongoing obligations of state government, like some other States that issue, you know, tax anticipation notes where they borrow against their future revenue. And, but the, the reality is if we don't, Make sure that that doesn't happen. The governor does, and we were giving that power to the governor. And so my my goal was: look, we're the people that should be making the decisions about when there's a shortfall of revenue, where that's going to come from. And so that was a, what my goal was. I did want to fully fund the foundation formula for schools because we had not been doing that. We were able to get that done, but we were also able to set money aside at the end of the budget to say, "Hey, if we don't collect as much money as we think we're going to collect, or if we know we're going to have a supplemental for Medicaid, meaning our Medicaid projections are probably not accurate. It's probably going to be more than that. We've got some money set aside over here in our budget to pay for those things. And that was the biggest thing that I felt like I was going to leave the General Assembly with was like a a shift in how we viewed that process and what our responsibility was. Uh, And to the credit of the people that have come after me, Cody Smith has been a great budget chairman in my view. He's done a Good job of defending that pro- that that approach of setting money aside. Granted, you know, after a couple of years, a tremendous amount of money came into the state. Right, we had um, billions of dollars of COVID funds coming in, and when I left the the legislature at the end of 2018, the budget the last budget that I passed was 28 billion dollars, and the one that was passed this year was closer to 50 billion dollars. The reality is that number could even be even higher. You know, I mean, they're just spending the money that we have available to spend and, and they're actually leaving billions of dollars in reserve.
1: It's, it's interesting. I've been talking to Lincoln Huff about it because, and he's the appropriate chair in the Senate and he's got incredible power over the budget in a lot of ways. And I said, like next year, will this budget go down? Because it, it almost feels like it has to, because all this federal, the federal dollars and the, the COVID money is going to go away. It's all one-time money. And I hope to see the budget being reduced. Now I think we spend it on infrastructure things, one-time things, and not a lot of ongoing new programs, which you know programs never go away. But um, I really wonder how if it's going to be much lower this next year. It'd be really interesting to see. What I mean, you you're an expert on the budget. What do you what do you foresee happening? Well, yeah, the the budget is one number, and then
0: the money that we actually spend is another another number. So I think the twenty the last budget was like forty eight billion dollars. I think we ended up spending about forty. Um, and so what was happening was a lot of the, which is still a lot more than what we had spent in the prior years. I mean, the yeah, budget's sure. still up probably 50% uh, in terms of what we're the spending is up probably 50%. The reality is when that money from the pandemic era program starts to expire, I mean, revenue and, you know, we're getting enhanced Medicaid match because of the, of the timing of the constitutional amendment to expand Medicaid just happened to fall in the period of time where there was a special provision in federal law that just gave an enhanced match to on Medicaid reimbursements to states that expanded Medicaid in that time frame so we got a bunch of money from that. So the budget is going to necessarily go down. I mean, it will it will have to. But in the meantime, I mean, there's a lot of money being spent on a lot of different things and there are new programs, there are a lot more programs that have crossed certain thresholds that require them to be audited per the single audit requirements from the federal government. And so that's actually spread our resources in the auditor's office pretty thin, but there's just more opportunity for fraud now, uh, in the administration of these funds, not necessarily, obviously an appropriation. It's a very public process. You know, there are lots of special interests involved in that process and everybody knows about that, but yeah, you know, on the administration side of these, of these programs, yeah, you know, there's tremendous opportunity if safeguards aren't put in place for money to be stolen. And, uh, so we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. I imagine that we'll probably, um, you know, be doing some audits that are kind of built around that premise and we'll see what the outcome of those are.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of work. Um, <clears throat> going back to Jay Nixon as our governor, he was the last Democrat governor we had while you were running budgets and we overrode him a ton of times. You're a really reasonable guy, but you're also one of the most principled guys I've ever been around. So you were always very much like, hey, like we can't do this. But you're never like a hack about it. How did you how did you have like put your foot down with Governor Nixon, but still have a relationship with that office? Because you still have to work, you know. You still have to work with the executive branch. You still have to at least have some understanding of what's going on and department heads, which you were you were holding accountable at all times. Like what that look like dealing with a Democrat governor that we were overriding all the time and saying, "Hey, your budget's not great." Yeah, well, it was actually
0: in that. So that was the years where I was vice chair of budget. And so it was a little bit different because, you know, Tom Flanagan was the budget chair. I was a what I would, I would probably say I was a very involved vice chair of budget just by virtue of what Tom wanted to
1: have happen. Sure. And and so I some uh, dynamics there that yeah. we won't go into, I'm sure. But, but
0: Well, I mean, he, he's a great guy. He just was, you know, he's he, a great guy, yeah. so he, he wanted to. You know, I mean, the, just the way his approach was was a, like a little more hands off on some subjects, and I was willing to get in the weeds. Does he and, still
1: have his own office in the? Is he in Jasper? Was it Jasper County that he had? Was it him that had an office in the county courthouse? They just like set up for him. Oh, know? I
0: don't know. Well, he's a commissioner now, so he's.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Sure, so maybe I he like just one time when he was a state did, rep, like they had an office in the courthouse.
0: It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me. He was, was good at. Yeah, you know, he, he he moved the budget chairman's office, uh, which had been in the same place for an he incredibly did, long time out of that. Yeah, so he 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 has a record of uh of having you know make making uh space accommodations uh, take place. So yeah. it's possible that the Jasper County Courthouse had a had a special uh, spot for the 163rd <laughs> yeah. District State Representative. Yeah. But but the point point is back to your question. I mean, um Nixon I don't think took me very seriously at that time. There was I think there towards the end maybe a little bit, but he viewed me and probably rightfully so as a kid and over ambitious punk legislator um
1: so i don't know you should have him on and ask him what he thinks but i don't know if i want to talk about um state parks that much i don't know if i'm into that (laughs) discussion well
0: i mean yeah he yeah the one thing about nixon is he knew how to he knew how to use i mean he was around for a long time and he dog walked the legislature on a lot of stuff yeah um including echo
1: echo bluff or whatever it's called which is still like we talk about that every single year like, are we going to fund this? Are we going to take it yeah. back? Are we, get you know, I think the house voted on it every year I was there. It's like, we're going to and then the Senate. I haven't been, but I hear it's very nice, a very nice state park. But yeah, he, he was a, he
0: was a pro at, at getting things that he wanted done. Uh, once we got the super majority, which we had 109 in the house. So my first year we had 109 and we did override a bunch of stuff. And then I think there, that may have been the year it's either 13 or 14 where we had 50, like, budget line overrides that, uh, and then he would still withhold. So we'd override the budget and he would immediately withhold. So then that was the genesis of the constitutional amendment that gave the legislature, the authority to override withholds as well. And we actually took that for a spin, uh, one of his last years as governor and he ended up releasing the money before this because the house passed the override. I remember. Yeah. So he didn't, he didn't allow that to, to come to full fruition, but he was an interesting guy. Like I was, brand new and he'd been around here for 25 years or whatever. And uh, we didn't have a lot of individual interactions, but
1: um, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. A lot, we're going to finish up here. Um, thanks for going so deep in all these things that I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, but the the one other question I got, the only thing on Twitter was like, what do you think about this Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift thing at the the Chiefs? Maybe in your staff, I can't remember who I asked, but well, they really wanted to know your take on
0: my take is um, it's probably good for Kansas City. It Feels like Kansas City has been the center of the of the sports and entertainment universe, and uh, it's been awesome to be a Chiefs fan. I've been a Chiefs fan yeah. my whole life, and so being able to go to the games. I wasn't there on Sunday. I was sitting on the couch watching the game with my wife, and when they showed Taylor Swift, I mean she she kind of freaked out. So she's been uh, doom scrolling everything she can find. Uh, related to that but i don't know i mean a lot
1: of new chiefs fans this week it feels like oh well yeah including her by the way she's an eagles fan but she's like now a chiefs fan yeah
0: you know she can she can change her shirt just like anybody else but i mean the reality is yeah everybody's a Chiefs fan until this doesn't work out that's what i'm worried about is the is the you know so i mean they're gonna at this point they're just gonna have to get married or something because we can't afford to have a, a fallout of Taylor Swift proportions at the I Kansas City really, Chiefs Well,
1: it's going to happen because she doesn't commit really. But the, it was really funny the other day, yesterday, I saw somebody, I wish I had thought about this. They came up with the the next Taylor Swift song, uh, from chat GPT. Like they wrote a song about how this falls apart for Jason Kelsey in the city of Kansas city. And it's actually an excellent, some great lyrics. Well, it was like, it's on track for
0: that. I'm, I'm rooting for him. Hope it works out. Um, We'll see how it shakes out. I'm a fan of anything that's good for, for Kansas City and for Missouri, and I think that something like that's not not, not a bad thing for us.
1: Do so. you think Governor Parson will um, give out any entertainment tax credits every time she visits, like now that we're doing that for music and, and film? Like, is I, that a thing?
0: I don't know, but uh, well, we have an entertainer's tax, which is interesting that was one of the things i learned about my first year is the entertainer's tax that goes into the special fund that then is supposed to go to the arts council if there's anything that would cause it to get done this is probably the <laughs> this is probably this is probably the uh uh the thing the catalyst that would make it happen we'll see
1: thanks man i really enjoy this conversation and uh really went in depth on your family and and your start which i really i really love because I've, i know your political career i've been around it hopefully other people find it as fascinating as i do but appreciate your time and I know you're busy. So thanks. Happy to do it. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Enjoyed it.